we are in the least spicy part of Revelation. And uh, those, that's chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters to the churches. We are going to only spend one night on these letters. Most of the time you hear, and of course not here, whenever, whenever I say pastor or church, I don't refer to this amazing church or this pastor or Joseph. I, I'm speaking very generally. Generally, when you hear a sermon on Revelation, it's from chapters 2 and 3. Am I right? Because, and why do you think that is? It's not spicy. In the words of my wife, she likes it mild. Right? That's right. That's right. That's right. They don't have the stomach for the spice. You got to keep it going. So, it's, we typically get sermons on chapters 2 and 3 because it's letters and we're familiar with letters and Paul wrote 13 of them so we know what to do with letters and that's why pastors will zoom forward to chapters 2 and 3. So we're only going to spend one night on this so we're going to get it out. Once we get into next week that's when we get into the medium spice okay and then once we get past chapter 5, then we're talking jalapeno, right? Or whatever the habanero, whatever. I don't even know all the different spices. <clears throat> okay, so let's back up just a little bit. Now, the book of Revelation is comprised of three, to use a fancy word, genres or literary types. What are those three literary types? Prophecy, one. Somebody's paying attention. Close. Close. Apoc- apocalyptic. Apocalyptic, that's two. And one more. Letters. Letters. Notice, notice the movement here. So the book opens... With an introduction in chapter 1, 1 through 4. Once the introduction's out of the way, the letter then begins. See, look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. See how the letters begin? It's very formal. To the seven churches, then grace and peace to you from him who is. Again, this is all standard stuff. Right after that uh, um, portion of the letter we get our first vision. After that commission, this is, remember, it's a commission from the Son of Man to John, saying, John, you are going to see lots of amazing things. You are going to primarily see Daniel 2 work its way out. Right when that vision ends, the letter portion resumes. Now verse 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Do you see? Now we get the letter again. So, we go, so it goes letter, vision, back to the letter. There are seven letters within chapters 2 and 3. These are to the seven churches. Now remember, again we'll go back. This is a class, so I like to ask questions. Why do we have an angel mentioned in each of the seven letters? Verse 1, to the angel. Verse 8, to the angel of the church of Smyrna. Verse 12, to the angel of the church of Pergamon. Why do we have these angels mentioned? Here's a hint. Do you remember why do we have... 
You can take your you can take your mask off. Yes, because they do represent the churches before. Remember, we'll we'll notice this in chapters four and five that there are twenty four angelic an, um, angels around the throne representing the church on earth. So when John writes to the angel, to the angel. He's reminding the church that, they, that their ultimate position is not on earth, but in heaven. And they are to take comfort from that. That if things are crazy, things are apocalyptic on earth. But in heaven, there's stability, there's tranquility. That's where there's a rainbow, and it's nice and calm. In fact, John actually says that the water is really calm in heaven. But on earth... It's chaos. Their ultimate identity is in heaven. So we're going to look at these seven letters, and we're going to see what's going on there. Just a couple pieces. Let me get to the next slide, then I'll come back. A word about these seven churches. They are in order. I don't know if you noticed this. Let me show you with my advanced Apple Pencil. So it starts here. Our first church mentioned is here, and then our second one Third, and I know this is really small, but these are going in order. In fact, the order of the churches mentioned in chapters 2 and 3 would be the order that the book is copied and distributed. So, it's gonna, so the first one is going to be the church of Ephesus. This, by the way, is the Apostle John's home church. He dies in Ephesus. This, he's going to minister at this location for a couple decades that's probably why it's his first church. He knows this congregation very well, very, very well. In fact, even though Paul founded this church, um, uh, he, prob- he likely knows most of the congregants. That's where the book is first distributed. It's going to hit Ephesus. After, Ephes- after the book is read at Ephesus, it's going to be copied, and then it's going to circulate to Smyrna, and then to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, uh, we'll close it out there. These are the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now let's think about this. The number seven, do you think that has any significance to it? In the Old Testament, seven, what are there? There are seven things of what in the Old Testament? We get all this, we get this language all over. You're answering all the questions. Keep that mask on. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. In the, yeah, Genesis 1, seven days of creation, right? And remember the year of Jubilee. And, this, you know, seven is a massive number in the Bible. In the book of Revelation, seven is all over. In fact, look at verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits. Seven spirits, and you're like, how can the Holy Spirit be seven people? Seven? Quick answer is, there are not seven spirits, okay? It's one spirit. And so what John is trying to say is that the fullness of the spirit is in heaven. The fullness of spirit is around the throne, do you see? And from the seven spirits before God's throne, it's the fullness of the spirit in heaven. 
Seven means fullness. So let's put this together. If the seven churches of Asia are symbolic of fullness or completeness, then what do they symbolize? They symbolize You're exactly right. Like the church, all scattered throughout all the eastern Mediterranean Sea, from Italy all the way over down into Egypt, to North Africa, okay? All of those churches are represented by these seven churches. Most commentators make that connection. I think it's a good connection. So let's think about this. We'll push this one more step. If they represent the church at large, then if we study these churches, that's like studying the church overall, right? So if we've got some good congregations, some faithful congregations, and some other congregations that are not so much, that's actually how the church at large is going to be. So by studying these seven churches, it gives us the temperature the, the spiritual temperature of all the other churches. Just a little piece here. The church, now we're at the end of the first century into the 90s. The church is going to number, at this point, probably a couple hundred thousand. It's bigger than you think. It really is. By the uh, fourth and fifth century, it, it exceeds that. It's going to be probably into the millions or a million. It's, it absolutely is ginormous. In fact, the church is so big... At the end of the first century, (laughs) you're going to laugh. Well, maybe not. I don't know. Um, That at some of these locations here, there are so many Christians, it's like hurting the idolatry trade. Because there aren't, not enough people are buying the idols. They're like, these Christians, they only worship one God. That's no fun. (laughs) I got ten, I got ten deities right here. They don't want any of them. So it starts to disrupt the economy, the idol economy or whatever. And so we have letters, it's amazing, we have letters sent to the emperor or sent to some of these uh, uh, Roman officials from these local magistrates saying, these Christians are no fun. <laughs> That's right. They aren't drinking enough. And so, because it just shows you just how big they are where they can actually disrupt something that lucrative. All right, let's get started. So this is how there are, if we, look, if, if we look at the seven churches, we can detect patterns. Here is the broad pattern for all seven letters. This is very instructive for us, okay? The first, the first there are one, two, three, four, five, six. There are six sort of pieces to each letter. The first piece is a command to write. They all have commands to write. Saying, John, write to this church, write to this church. Right immediately following the command, we have a a self-description of the Son of Man. Now, fortunately, these self-descriptions are come from the first vision. We've already covered that vision. For example, look at 2.1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's a self-description, and that's from what? Remember the beginning of the vision? 
Do you see how that's drawn from the vision? What about verse 8? To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. That is from 117. So what we get then is that each letter carries over the symbolism from the first vision and applies it to the church. So this is why the first vision is so important. We have to figure out who Jesus is. We talked about this last week, the Son of Man, what he came to do, and that's immediately practical for these seven churches. The symbolism carries over. Now, this is an aside. I don't have a slide on this, but it's worth writing down. One of the reasons why we think that this book applies mostly to what began in the first century and is not a strictly future book, it's because it's a letter to the churches. For example, if this book, if most of the book were just simply something that were to happen thousands of years later, then how would the seven churches read it? Like, thanks for those people. Glad I'm not living in the latter days, you know what I'm saying? I hate to go, I hate to suffer persecution like these people will. Do you see? They, they would, in other words, very practically, they would only have like three chapters of a 22 chapter book to apply. Like chapter four and chapter five? That's interesting. You know, it, it doesn't really work as a letter, but because the book is a letter, the whole thing, or at least most of it, is going to apply to these churches, not just a sliver of it. That's, a, that's, that's an important point. So after we get the self-description, the Son of Man is going to tell these churches, like, hey, you guys got some good things going on. I see this. So there's a commendation. But most of them have an accusation, which means, like, well, you're not 100% good. I've got a bone to pick. And then there's an exhortation to fix what's wrong and then a promise to the one who conquers. This is the main point of, so there are seven letters. At the end of each letter is the main point. If they obey, they inherit the new creation. And we will talk about that. Okay, this is what it looks like. So when we, when we chart all seven churches, this is how they're all doing. It's very interesting. Ephesus and Laodicea, how are they doing? On the verge of collapse, that's not good, is it? But then we go into Smyrna. Look, Smyrna in Philly, faithful. Now, with what we know about Philadelphia, it's surprising. <laughs> I am not an Eagles fan. <laughs> Very surprising here. So we have on the verge of collapse, verge of collapse. So these are largely unfaithful. And then Smyrna, Philadelphia, certainly faithful. And then these three guys right here in the middle, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, they're mixed in their dedication to Christ. Mixed. This is called, so have you guys ever heard this word before? A chiasm? You heard this word chiasm? I know somebody here has heard what a chiasm is. Do you guys know? Come on. Mostly? Yes. Okay. So, I know Hunter. What Greek letter is this? 
key. He took three semesters of Greek from me, so that would have broke my heart. I'm like, you need to get out now. <laughs> so this is the letter key in Greek. So we use that to transliterate it, key. All right? Notice the structure here. So if I subtract half of the key, this is noti- notice here, see how we get the pattern? It's called a chiasm. Chiasm. Okay? In a chiasm, the main point or the emphasis is found in the middle of the key. Okay? So the focus of chapters 2 and 3 are on Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. And if the seven churches embody or symbolize the universal church, how is the universal church doing 70 years later? How are they doing as a whole? Some good things, some bad things, right? Some good things, some bad things. It's not, the church as a whole is not on the verge of collapse, nor is it faithful. It's doing some good things and it's doing some bad things. It's, there's some, there is some compromise within. So it, makes, it really does make a lot of sense in light of what we know of Christianity at this time. Okay, any questions or, or comments you want to make here before we jump in? All right, let's... You know, I, I figured somebody was going to say that. Like, I apologize. This is very, very theological. Yeah, I know. It's, there are a few letters that we don't know how they are pronounced. But we do know how that one was. All right. Um, so let's, let's, let's take a gander. There's that word again. Let's take a gander at the first letter. I need somebody to read 2, 1 through 7. Who wants to read 2, 1 through 7? Who's ready? Who's got their Bible open? And I mean, is this allowed? Am I able to do this with COVID? And I mean, maybe just speak to the ground or something. That's right, as long as you don't sing. <laughs> or speak in tongues. We don't do that here. Doug, go ahead. All right, it's right there, right there. Is this a good thing? Is this is the Son of Man? Is this, are these good things? What have they done well, Doug? It's hard to read with comprehension when you're reading out loud, so I, we'll, we'll give them. So they're persevering in their faith. Right, so it says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You have found them false. Do they have good doctrine? 
they've got good doctrine. So they have good doctrine, and they have perseverance in their faith. Yeah, this is good. So let's keep reading. Let's see what's going on here, verse 4. Nicolaitans, it's hard to say. <laughs> I mean, this is Mississippi. I mean, very good. Let's give Doug a round of applause. I mean, come on, come on. Good reform clap there. We're just lucky to move around. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's in verse 4. It's like, okay, you guys have good doctrine. But verse 4, it says you've lost your first love. So a a lot of pastors, I hear this. This is a perfect pastor's sermon, right? You've lost your first love, which is typically interpreted as what? Yeah, your zeal in passion for God. Now, that's a possible interpretation. But we think we can, I think there's a better way at approaching this. What does God, there's, there's a symbol that he then invokes. So if they keep this course of action, what is he going to do to them? He's going to remove their what? Lampstand. Now, let's think about this. Now, the lampstand is a symbol for the church. End of chapter 1. But functionally speaking, the lampstand does what in a dark world? It shines brightly. So it's, it's testimony. It's evangelism. This church has stopped being evangelistic. They've got good doctrine. No evangelism. I would argue... That good doctrine ultimately leads to evangelism, right? My mind. But you can see how the emphasis is like, man, you guys, you've, you've evaluated these false teachers, and you're like, you guys are no good. Get out of here. You've got good head knowledge, but it hasn't gone down to your heart. If you keep it up, those at Ephesus, God's going to wipe them out. The Son of Man. Look at the look. Let's go back to verse one. These are the words of Him, verse chapter two, verse one. These are the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Does this is the Son of Man familiar with this church of Ephesus? Because he's walking, he's checking this thing out. He's like, I know you guys. I look at how close I am to you. And I've got the stars that represent you. He's the, their angel is right in his midst. He knows this church well. So he knows when they are evaluating false doctrine. They're doing a good job. But he also knows that they aren't living it out. 
possible. We don't, we don't, it's very possible. This church, so Ephesus, I mean, remember when Paul, I mean, this church is going to date to the mid-30s. This thing has been on the map for almost 60 years. I mean, it, you know, it was, it was the place where the apostles would roll through town. So they know Christianity. They've, we are now, so 60 years later, they're in their at least second generation of believers. They're just becoming complacent in their evangelism. And they could be, they could be large. It really could be. We, we don't know. But this, I mean, this, and again, to go back to, this is where John is going to die. John is gonna, John's not, he's on an island in exile, but he is going to be buried in Ephesus. What appears to have happened is that they did turn things around. They did, that they heeded this warning in that the church then continued to, um, or indeed repented. All right. Let's go to, let's check this out. Let's go down to the promise. Whoever has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay. Uh, Let me go forward here. Let me go forward. Let's go to, oh, yes, right here. Nope, not that. All right, right here. Um, there are promises. Each, each letter ends with a promise. And each promise is fulfilled at the very end of history in the new creation. So let's turn to the very... So keep your finger here. Turn to Revelation 22, 1 and 2. I want you to see where we get this tree of life imagery again. I want you to see this. Revelation 22, 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Now again, this is the vision. This is in the new creation, in the eternal state. After our resurrection, we, are, we have glorified bodies. And this is a vision of, the, of where we're going to spend all of eternity. This is it right here. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city because the earth the earth in the new creation is a gigantic temple. That's why it's synonymous with city. The city is the temple, which is the planet, earth. Uh, bearing, and, on the, and it says, um, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. So, what John is saying is that if this church, if the church of Ephesus overcomes, then what do they get? They get an inheritance in the new creation. They get to live in the eternal state forever and ever. They will spend eternity with God in the new earth. And so that's why he evokes the symbol of the tree of life. It's, there's not, I don't think that there will be literally like two trees in the new earth. I mean, it's possible, but it's very symbolic here. It's just the idea, because remember, ultimately, the original tree of life is where? The Garden of Eden. But if you notice, this tree of life in the eternal state, there are multiple, because it's, it's much bigger now. There's an escalated tree of life. Now, so the Old Testament tree of life in the garden, now remember, Adam, 
there's debate as to whether or not Adam was eating that tree of life continually or if he obeyed, then he could eat it. There's debate there. It's difficult to figure it out. But when he is barred from the garden, it says that he cannot partake of the tree of life lest he live forever. Do you remember that? Because this is a life-giving tree that really symbolizes God's life-giving presence. So in the eternal state, God's presence, who is, who is now with his people forever and ever, just fuels everybody. He's, just a, he's a life-giving God. And so everybody around him, all of creation, feed off of his presence. That's the point. God is a life-giving God. In other words, they, the church at Ephesus will get God if they go back to their evangelistic ways. If they don't, they will not be in God's presence forever and ever. They will be in the antithesis of that forever endeavor. So what's really interesting here, and this is, so what I'm trying to show you is that each of these promises that are found in the seven letters go back to the very end of the book. So look at this promise we just mentioned. Eat from the tree of life? That's from, that's, we just saw that in 22.2. Will be a pillar in the temple of God? Well, the new earth is a gigantic temple. 3.12, they'll be part of the heavenly Jerusalem. Again, the new earth is a gigantic Jerusalem. They will have the name of their God written on their foreheads. That's precisely what you get in 22.4. If you obey, then your name is written in the book of life. 3.5, we find that in 21.27. So, and on and on it goes. But the point is very, very clear. These churches have got to keep going. And this is where, like, you really need to feel uncomfortable when you read these letters. That's the point. There should never be a moment in your life when you're like, I'm doing pretty good. I love God. God loves me. I'm just coasting. Put it in neutral. Let the wind take me. Probably will do that if you do that in your car tonight. <laughs> this is not a normal night. But the idea then is that do never, ever, ever coast because the way that the gospel works is that you put your faith in Christ when you put your faith in Christ what do you do you're gonna work it out it's a living faith James says it's a living faith it's not a dead faith it's not simply a sense like okay Jesus is is king okay you know what you know what James says the demons believe that The demons have great doctrine. Maybe not robust doctrine, but they know some doctrinal truths. But the difference between a demon and a believer, it's a lot, but hang in there. (laughs) The difference is that a demon simply knows, has mental assent, whereas believers, there's a trust. There's the entrusting of oneself to Christ and to his promises. When you entrust yourself to Christ, you're going to keep doing that, right? You're just going to keep, it's not, I tell my students this all the time, it's not 
do you remember when you were first saved? I was five years old. I remember my dad was a youth pastor. And one day, I remember we were in the house, and I, have a, and I had an overwhelming sense of my sin. And so I called up my dad. He was at church. said, hey, Dad, um, I want to be saved. And he said, sounds good. Let's wait until I come home from work. And I said, okay. So I hung up the phone. I was like, what happens if I die between now and then? <laughs> I distinctly remember this. A five-year-old like, you're cutting it kind of close, Pops. It's easy to go, oh, but I believed 20 years ago, or I, I, you know, I threw my stick in the fire at a camp. The step, you know, there, it happened. I have a plaque on the wall. No. Jeez. I apologize. This is what's hard about in class. I can do these fun things, but here I got I to gotta tone it down. Sorry about that. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because the idea is, are you believing in Jesus? Are you entrusting in him right now? Right now. Are you giving your heart to him tonight and tomorrow? Are you going to wake up tomorrow morning and give yourself to him? You've got to work it out. You trust in him. You give, him, you give, you give yourself to him, and you're going to work it out. You're going to be evangelistic. It's just going to happen. It is not simply, oh, I believe 10 years ago. When, when the Bible says, trust in the promises of God, it's not simply saying, trust in them one time. It means keep coming back to them over and over. You remember like those little, those little um, promise cards that like grannies would pass out? You know, they'd have them like in their pockets, like, passing those things out like Kit Kats. Do not do that for Halloween, just so you know. But you know, I don't know if you guys ever remember that, but they would like these little promise. They make all these Bible verses with, you know, what God is going to do. And you're like, that's a little cheesy. But the idea is sound to remind ourselves of all the promises in here often and to keep convincing ourselves that they are true. Because this world tells us the opposite. No, it's not true. There is no God. Or God's not in control. You're in control. And that's what they tell us. I, I tell my students, I go to bed a Calvinist and I wake up an Arminian. Because in the morning I'm like, I am in control. And then the kids wake up. Because <laughs> it's true though. Because you wake up and you're like, I think I know what I'm doing. I think I know how to handle myself. And then you have to return to the Bible and think, oh, I've got it all backwards. I forgot. Twelve hours ago I had it, but I forgot it. And so this is why every day we think about what Christ has done and we give ourselves to him over and over again. Again. And that's what this church has got to do. They've got to give themselves over and watch their evangelism. All right, second, second letter. We can, we can move quick here. Uh, verses 8 through 11. 8 through 11. Who's going to read it? Smyrna. It's hard. This is what the first and the last says. Who is dead and 
Very good. This is a faithful church. Why are they faithful? Why are they green? What have they done well? What do you think? Yeah, from, it tells us the source of it. From Satan, who, who are inspire, who's inspiring who? It says it right here in verse 9. Jews. Do you see the irony here? I mean, this is a punch to the gut. So these Jews are hostile. In Smyrna, there are a group of Jews that are hostile to this largely Gentile church. And do you see what John says? Because you know a synagogue? So synagogue would be their church, their place of worship. You know what? Do you see what John calls it? A synagogue of what? Satan. They think it's a synagogue of God. <laughs> they think they go to worship and they're praising God. Instead, John says, no, they're worshiping Satan. That's politically incorrect, just so you know, today. But he doesn't pull any punches. So what happens in the, so in the first century... Christianity was, was a legal religion. And the Jewish Jews were allowed to practice legally. Now let's think about this. In Rome, did they, were, were, were Romans monotheists? No. You guys ever read Percy Jackson or know anything about the pantheon of deities? Okay. Mount Olympus with all of those gods. And now at the end of the century... We're into full-blown emperor worship mode where it is directed to everybody in the empire to worship the emperor, okay? So what Christianity was able to do is they were able to fall under the umbrella of Judaism. So it was legal to be a Christian because they got the, the empire viewed Christians as, Jew, as part of the Jewish faith. But what happened is that we have accounts of Jews, of Jews going before magistrates and saying, they're not Jews. This is something, this is an aberration. They worship, they worship a guy who died on the cross. They worship somebody who claims to be God. That can't be true. So they're trying to move them outside of the legal umbrella. And what that would do is that would, that would then, Rome would then zero in on these Christian congregations and persecute them, and kill them. So that's what this church is doing, trying to move them outside. Next one. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll end with this one because this is very important. 12 through, 12 through 17. Who's going to read this one? Go ahead. Read aloud.
All right, very good. This one is mixed, Pergamum. They've done something really well, and that is they've avoided idolatry for the most part. You see in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Apparently, Pergamum was like the place for emperor worship. They, had, they built massive structures where its citizens would go in and worship the emperor. And that's probably what John has in mind. So they're, they're, they've re- apparently they're resisting that. But here in verse 14, there's a problem with the church. He, the Son of Man says, well, I've got a couple things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Is Balaam a good guy or a bad guy in the Old Testament? Bad guy. When was the last time you came across a Balaam, you know, just around town? There are just some names that people don't have. You never run into a Bathsheba? Mm, run into a Tamar? Or, you know, a little awkward. <clears throat> Balaam is not a good guy. And so apparent, and then he's going to unpack this. So Balaam, again, is symbolic. It's, a, it's just an old, it's, it's the, it's, he's like the bad guy in the Old Testament who led Israel astray into idolatry. And there's a sexual component because he enticed Israel through women, through marrying these foreign women. Now right here, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Okay, this is probably what went on. There were these, in cities, in Asia Minor, they would have these feasts and banquets, but they're pagan feasts, and they're pagan banquets. And they would roll out these spreads, and that's what you did. There would be maybe, uh, so apparently, these at the churches, Pergamum, were going to these pagan banquets, and there was a sexual component involved here. So that not only are they participate, so when they go to these banquets, they're exposing themselves to idolatry in the sexual immorality. Son of Man says, cut it out. If you keep doing this, you will lose your citizenship in the new creation. Don't even get around it. Don't dabble in it. Flee from it. They ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. There's a piece there. This is super important for us today, right? We know what the Bible says on these issues. So when the culture's like, ah, oh, it's not that bad, I mean... You know, maybe 20 years ago it was bad, or maybe five years, but but not in 2020. Come on, we are enlightened now. We now know we figured this thing out. That's one piece. The other piece is this. This is a more philosophical piece. Who are you to tell me what to do? Whatever makes me happy, that's the truth. You see, have you ever heard of a word called postmodernism? No, so, so we're in post postmodernism. We aren't in postmodernism anymore. What happened in postmodernism was this notion of that truth is relative. So you could read a book, you could read the Bible, any book, and see 
No, it doesn't mean that. It's going to read whatever. It's going to mean whatever I say it means. I say what goes. I am the sole source of truth. If you disagree with me, you're wrong, essentially. I cannot be wrong. I dictate truth. This is precisely what the devil was trying to do in the garden with Eve. Oh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You take that. Then you decide what is right and what is wrong. So that's precisely what we get today. But what happened in, 20, what happened in like 2000, I don't know, like 15, the last 15-ish years, it's moved into something else. Now everything isn't knowledge-based, it's feelings-based. Oh, this, this, your view doesn't make me happy. It, it, hurt, it hurts me. You see, we, we, we now use words of emotions to dictate what is right and what is wrong. This is a new game in town, do you see? 20 years ago, it wasn't based on emotions. It was just on based, it was based upon your reading of text or your interpretation. No, that's old school. No, 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 that's, that's too heady. We've now moved into the heart. We've now moved into a person's emotions. So that's why we, ha- we live, if you're just on social media, do you notice how like emotional things are? Notice there's been a slight uptick in that area. It's because emotions govern truth. We're in a post-modern post society. And you know what the world doesn't want to hear? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't. Is, yeah, but the Bible says we can't do these things. This isn't what God, this isn't how God designed us to function. This isn't how God wants us to relate. They say, oh, get away from me. They used to eat, back in the day, they, used, they had a Bible of their own. They'd be like, mm, let me find that passage. I don't know about that one. But now they're like, who cares what Jesus says? Who cares what the Bible says? So we're in a new phase. We're in a new phase of evangelism now. This is where I'm going with it. The best way to evangelize, the best way to reach people is to just live it out so that the world when the world is they have their broken marriages and their broken relationships they're going to look at us and they're going to go well look at that stability there look at their kids it's stable they work hard they provide for themselves Look at how you, they've got the full, whereas they look at their own and they see chaos, right? They see chaos in their lives and brokenness. But when they look at us, man and a woman, it's going to be attractive for them. But it's only attractive if we do it the right way. If we don't do it the right way, if we're unsure or if we give in, then why would they want to become a Christian? Why even go to church? If we're the same, if we, do, if we have the same types of marriages in relationships, then why even come to church? They could have two Saturday mornings. I don't know what that's like. My, you know, when on, on our way to church, we, I think we are the only, we live in the only house in all of Madison whose neighbors don't go to church. It's amazing. I'm like, because, you know, it's in the south, and everybody's taking off the church. And every Sunday, I'm like, man, they're like outside, like running around. And I'm like, two Saturdays, two Saturday mornings. 
look, if the Son of Man saw us in 2020, you know what he would say? I'm walking in your lampstands. Don't give up on church. Keep going. Don't abandon. Because the culture is going to want to bring you in. Come on, join us. It's better over here. You'll have more time for yourselves. Do our stuff. But the Son of Man, who has right here, it says in verse 9, in verse 12, these are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. Remember that from the first vision? What do you think that symbol? What do you think that symbol is referring to? Is that a comforting symbol? No. That's a symbol of judgment. It's a sword of Damocles. Do you guys know that reference? The sword of Damocles. The sword, this double-edged sword is hanging over the church. If they don't get their act together with this sexual immorality in this idolatry, the sword is going to come crashing down on them. And that's what's going to spur them on. If they are faithful, what do they get? This is amazing. What do they get? Verse 17. To the one who is victorious. Huh? What do they get? Manna in white. The white stone probably is the manna. Right? It probably, they, they, they may be interchangeable here. They get... And it says, and it says, with a new name written on it. So in the new creation, this, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to have a new name. It just means that we're in a new phase of redemption. We're in the, we're in the new creation. So you're going to get, you're going to get like a placard. Like, have you guys ever been to, to Disney? And it's, um, I think it's Epcot. We have all the bricks. Donate 80 grand and we'll put a brick with your name on it. <laughs> Hey, that sounds like a great deal. So it's like you will get a brick. You will get a, a metaphorical brick in the new creation because you're going to say, that belongs to me. But only, only if I keep going. Can't put it in the neutral. Can't rest on my laurels. I have to keep going and I have to be faithful and I have to give myself over to the Son of Man every day without compromise. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these words. They comfort, they sting, but they propel. They always propel us to, to godliness. And we ask you would bless us this week when we are tempted to draw into culture, into compromise, and to do what's frankly quite easy. May that not be the case. May we be steadfast. May we be like the church of Smyrna. In your name we pray, amen.